Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, our BIV tech panels coming up. They're going to talk about plans to tax big tech, as well as a new set of smart glasses that can automatically, autonomously recognize your face, whether that's useful or whether that's creepy. And coming up, Carlo Dade will discuss why Canada's trade challenges go deeper than China and how businesses can navigate a world subject to 2 a.m. tweets on trade policy. We're accepting a number of nominations for our awards here at BIV. These include our BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and our signature 40 Under 40 Awards program. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are now open. Visit BIV.com slash events for details. My first guest today says Canada's trade problems go much deeper than challenges with China. Carlo Dade is the director of the Trade and Investment Center at the Canada West Foundation. He's a senior fellow at the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa. He's also a regular on this podcast. Carlo, good to have you back on. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, great to be here. You know, we've got Vancouver weather here today in Calgary, so it feels like I'm I'm there with you. <laughs> I love it. Now Tell me what you mean by the fact that our problems go much deeper than China. What problems are most concerning for Canada at this point in time? So, yeah, this is a follow-on to the piece that was in the Globe uh, over the weekend. And that was actually the original title of the piece, that our problems go much deeper than China. The issue is we are day-to-day faced with trade shocks, some of them political, but the combination of these shocks tends to get missed because we're spending so much time trying to tamp down the problem of the moment, a threat to NAFTA, steel and aluminum tariffs, Italy banning wheat, not just China and India. But when you step back and look at the totality of the problems, you realize that it is pretty much a systemic and sustained attack on the rules-based system. Now, there are two factors to this. One are the attacks on countries like China and others. The other more troubling aspect is that the country that created the international rules-based system, the country that we rely on to do what we cannot do, which is to enforce the rules-based system, has turned into a major rules breaker. Not the occasional breaking in the past, but sustained attacks on the rules-based system and an attempt to undermine, if not dismantle, the WTO, as some analysts would claim. So for a country that is as trade-dependent as Canada and exports as a percentage of GDP, we're one of the higher-ranked countries, major economies in the world, this, this sustained attack on the overall system is what's troubling. It's not just China. It's also the United States. And that, we expect more out of the United States. We rely on the U.S. for more. And that, I would argue, is of all the problems that we face, that is probably the most troubling. So what is Canada to do if our country finds itself in this position in between two behemoths like the United States and like China? And India and Italy and other countries piling on. Indeed, the response you hear most often is we need to diversify from uh, from these countries. We have too many of our eggs in the U.S. basket. 
60-some percent of our in exports, I think, uh, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but the last time I looked, 66-ish percent of our exports are going to the U.S., 10 or slightly higher percent of exports go to China. Um, so we need to diversify from these countries. But diversification is not a substantial or satisfactory answer when you're facing a systemic challenge to a world-based rule system. Where are you going to go? Um, obviously, we have some good choices, the TPP countries, Japan, Mexico, Australia. But where really are we going to go if we leave the U.S. and China? The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, that's not a country that inspires confidence in rules-based systems and countries living up to their obligations. Uh, economies like Turkey, Russia, again, the problem for Canada, I don't think can simply be answered by diversification. So what do we do? Well, if the rules-based system that we've relied on, that we've trusted, that's kind of lulled us into a sense that we can go any place in the globe isn't working, we need to reappraise the risk of going abroad and figure out how we mitigate the increased risk, uh, including uh, helping companies at home. What does that mean? We don't know. We're just thinking about the problem. We're just realizing <laughs> the nature of the problem that we're in. And so immediate solutions, snap answers, I don't think are there. We have to really think through this increased risk environment and the changing nature, losing the U.S., uh, China, trading with a uh, centrally planned economy. There are a whole bunch of things that have changed. And I don't think we've really thought through these issues. So we're not going to get answers until we think, realize the problem and then start thinking through it. Do you see these as more permanent changes, Carlo? What, what do you say to people who say, you know what, let's wait until things get back to normal. Let's wait out the current U.S. administration, be it for a short amount of time or potentially another term, and then we'll start getting back to how things were. Yeah, that's a, a satisfactory answer because it's easy and it's simple um, and it doesn't require uh, any the real shifts in behavior other than hunting down. I would say it's a hope for a wish for a return to a normal that no longer exists and is not coming back. So what you're seeing in the United States is a dismantling of some of the institutions that have protected trade. You've seen a president use authority ceded to him by Congress in ways that other presidents might have wanted to, but were restrained either by uh, a greater understanding of the nature of the U.S. economy or by a Congress that stood up to it. Neither of those factors are there anymore. We've seen a Congress that has totally abdicated responsibility for disciplining and managing the authority it's given to the president on trade. I don't see that changing. I don't see a Congress and Senate suddenly being filled with a new generation of John McCain's. If you look at the people coming in on the left and the right in Congress, they are up for change, and I don't see them rolling back what the president's done. Then if you look at the history of the U.S. and the history of presidents pushing the authority that Congress has given them, there's been a steady history, uh, I would say almost unbroken, for one or two cases, 70s, mid-70s. But there's been a pretty much unbroken strain of um, these powers being pushed by Congress, uh, by the president and Congress not taking them back. So bottom line, Trump set the bar low. He's opened the Pandora's box. And I don't see incoming administrations 
totally slamming the box shut because it gives the president a great deal of authority and power. And is one of the big consequences of that, that depending on the president, there's more authority and more potential uncertainty when it comes to shifts in policy that could impact us in Canada? Exactly. And we're living through a a period of this in its most intense manifestation. So we have a president that basically has power that allows him to do things like tweet at two o'clock in the morning that he is going to impose a 5% across the board tariff on Mexico. Uh, Markets react uh, in a frenzy. Business is thrust into a new world of uncertainty. And again, it's almost like a billion dollars a day that comes from Mexico into the U.S. It's not just cars, auto parts, health and all the parts, it's healthcare, it's agriculture. So the president has the ability to do something that is so dangerous to the U.S. economy. Now, for us in Canada, we say, ah, that's just Mexico. But three weeks ago, I think roughly, the president was just given authority to impose national security tariffs, so the same tariffs as on steel and aluminum, to impose national security tariffs on all those and all the parts. So we now have the very real possibility in Canada of being awoken at two o'clock in the morning by a tweet from President Trump that he's mad that something that Canada's done and he's going to go after steel and aluminum tariffs. Even if the tariffs are not imposed, the simple fact that the president can credibly tweet at two o'clock in the morning that this is going to happen will send the markets into a frenzy. So this is the current situation in which we're living in Canada, and we have to adjust to this. Business has to start adjusting to this. That he can do that and that he can appear to simply change his mind one day to the next, does that erode the value of the kinds of agreements we're trying to strike between Canada and the U.S.? Yes, it erodes the value, but not the the total worth of having the agreement. So the agreements like this work well to manage those aspects of trade you're not aware of. You only hear about issues where there are problems. Where the agreements work to manage and facilitate trade, you don't hear uh, about them. So I'd argue that they're still important for that. But as you just mentioned, you have to reappraise the total value. Now, a new NAFTA agreement is not a blanket get-out-of-jail-free card for businesses in the dealings with the U.S. Businesses, I think, now have to invest the time, the money, and the manpower to figure out where they are exposed in the U.S. and to take steps to manage and mitigate that risk. Uh, We no longer have the free pass that some argue NAFTA gave us in the past. Um, And you've seen this with the tariffs on Mexico, steel and aluminum, the threat that we can allocate auto tariffs, or that, uh, you know, the softwood lumber dispute now looks kind of pissy in comparison. But you really, I think, as a business, have to go through and start analyzing these risks and looking at mitigation measures, maybe moving production out of the U.S., um, maybe looking at taking insurance steps to protect um, supply and production chains, uh, the whole the whole nine yards. To what extent can businesses here in Canada take cues, let's say, from how the U.S. is choosing to interact with Mexico? And to what extent is it just an entirely different situation? How much insight can we try and glean from that relationship? Well, obviously, the issues on the Mexican border are, are, are different. The, the migration issues, uh, refugees, um, the nature of crime, not that crime doesn't exist on the north 
northern border uh, illicit activities, but the nature is different. So it creates a different set of pressures. But again, if you think about it through a logical policy framework where you analyze national interests, you analyze the political relationship between the two countries, and you think in a strategic sense, well, you're operating in a world in which Donald Trump doesn't exist. You have to realize that the threats we're seeing are just random and capricious. Um, obviously, the, the issue with the Mexican border is, is stems from the, the migration issues and other, and other problems, but the response does not come from a strategic, considered policy response that involves political calculations and national interests. Um, so that's the risk that we face on the northern border. You can try to analyze where the potential threats are, but you have to realize that in areas where we're exposed, they can be subject to non-strategic, non-political, non-policy process uh, types of actions. Where are the opportunities at this point in time? It seems like there's so many challenges and a lot of risk, but for those who, as you put it earlier, are willing to put in the time and effort to really understand what's going on and make informed decisions, what are some of the opportunities you see? So I think agriculture and, and the commodity trade with the U.S., um, again, taking the risk off the table uh, is, still, is still an opportunity. The U.S. agricultural sector has been hit on the, um, the natural disaster front, and um, I think there will be opportunities. We have a very good agricultural trade, and we're very well connected with the U.S. and also Mexico. Um, let's not forget that trade diversion, if the U.S. and Mexico get into a, a fight and it gets nasty, there are going to be more opportunities from U.S. trade diversion as companies look to buy from elsewhere or they look to trade elsewhere to avoid the U.S., and we stand to pick up some of that. Services, potentially another area. We talk so much about the trade in goods, but we haven't had as many conversations about trade in services. And I think especially from a trade diversion perspective, you can think of how a place like YVR could benefit. People don't want to go to the U.S. They don't want to put staff in the U.S. If they have business on this side, Asian firms that have business on this side of the Pacific, um, that's another opportunity for trading services uh, that's not a, a, a linear thought, but sort of a, a, you have to make a jump to get there. So there's certainly that. But there's a lot that the provincial government can do as well. Hmm. What might those areas be? What could we see from BC? So, you know, the provinces have um, a unique ability to interact with their American counterparts. So premiers with governors, MLAs with U.S. state uh, legislators. We are part of the working group, so the Western Governors Association, uh, Western Premiers can go down, the National Governors Association, Premiers from across Canada, the Midwest Governors Association, the U.S. Council of State Governments, the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. We have a lot of ability to try and impact and to influence um, and to strengthen ties with folks at the regional, at the local level. Um, so that's an avenue that places like Japan, uh, their prefectures aren't invited to the Western Governors Association on a regular basis. Uh, legislators from, say, Europe aren't coming over to take part in the Council of State Governments West, but we can. The issue with BC is, I would argue that they've been the least 
effective and least efficient the province has participated the least in this um, i've seen quebec at western governors association meetings i haven't seen bc show up um, i think actually quebec's been more helpful to the west on some of these issues than bc so it's not meant as a criticism but it's meant as an easy opportunity for bc to be able to step up and start addressing directly some of the issues that BC businesses face by trying to work with U.S. governors and U.S. state legislators. One of the themes of this conversation has been the need to change our thinking to better reflect new realities, a new era, a move away from rules-based institutions and systems at the global level. How should businesses in Western Canada be thinking at this point in time? What should they start to consider? How can they start to tackle global challenges in their own way? So I think uh, if you break it down a little bit, there are still pockets where the rules-based system seem to be functioning with more assurance and certainty. So again, we're not in a crisis where everything's falling apart, where the WTO has been disbanded and God knows the Americans are, are taking up pot shots to make that happen. But there are still pockets out there. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, we've talked about this a lot. But you have a group of countries that <laughs> kept the TPP, essentially, to keep a rules-based trade block on. Um, so you have economies like Japan, Australia, Mexico, good markets um, where businesses can find a, a potential port in the storm. Also investing the time and effort to figure out where you are exposed in the U.S., not using the past analysis of a rational, predictable policy making system and apparatus in the U.S., but in a world where we're going to be subject to 2 a.m. tweets, where are you most vulnerable? And I think that's going to require an investment of resources on the part of business and increased risk mitigation uh, for their trade with the U.S. And that will change business to business. Some it's hiring lobbying companies, some it's duplicating supply chains in Canada, some it's looking at alternative markets. But for each business, there's need to take a look at the risk in this new environment and to start implementing measures to mitigate against it. You saw what happened with canola farmers when they just rode the, uh, the gravy train of increased exports to China and um, wound up in a situation of dependency that came back to bite them. You can see things like that in advance. You can see the growth in trade and the growth in dependency to China and realize that you're at greater risk and think about taking measures to mitigate it. So I would use that as an analogy um, for businesses thinking about dealing with the U.S., China, and elsewhere. Carlo, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for your insight. Hey, sorry. Hopefully next time we'll have some better news. <laughs> Maybe one day, but we'll still keep having you back in the meantime. Great, thanks. That's Carlo Dade, Director of the Trade and Investment Center at the Canada West Foundation. It's now time for our weekly tech panel. In studio with me, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, and Linda Falk is CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Lots to talk about today, but we're starting with G20 financial ministers. They have a tentative plan to tax big tech. We've spoken about this before. It is an unbelievably complex undertaking. But is this a good first step, Linda? Is this progress? Yeah, I think this is progress. I think that the... Uh, 
The G20 nations are figuring out that uh, taxing on sales, trying to get some revenue generated from the businesses that happen within their border, the, the digital business that happens within their borders is kind of fair. Uh, not waiting for these uh, companies to hide behind lower tax rates in countries that they're basing themselves in. This is a logical pro uh, progression for us figuring out how this digital economy is really going to work for everybody long term and not just benefit those who tax incentivize companies to create headquarters like Luxembourg and Ireland have been doing for some time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, these these uh, companies that are under scrutiny, or, or I guess I think the ones that they're targeting, the the ones that we all are quite aware of because we speak about them every week. Uh, you know, they're they're probably circumventing billions in do of dollars a year of taxes, billions of dollars a year. Yeah, and so it's just a, it creates a, a massive competitive advantage for them. When you think about, I mean, you, you, we, we talk about this all the time, Haley, about Amazon's competitive advantages versus Walmart's versus the, the mom and pop shop on the end of the street. The mom and pop shop on the end of the street is paying, you know, 16 to 20% tax rate in Canada. Well, these, well, these companies enjoy an effective tax rate of zero in North America, for the most part. Yeah. And I like the idea that they're talking about taxing sales and not waiting for that mythical manufactured profit line to tax on. So the actual <laughs> yeah. sales that are happening at the top line, I think that's an interesting way to go after. I, yeah, I think the question is how they get divvied up because these are global companies that operate in almost every country in the world. So how do you ensure that, uh, you know, Portugal is getting their fair share of taxes? It's a great question. We, we do have the technology the online, though, to figure out where the sales are coming from. So it shouldn't be technically that hard to figure yeah, out. You could divvy it up just based on user, on users and, and probably get away with it yeah. pretty close. Yeah. Is enforcement an issue? Because as you mentioned, a couple countries, Linda, the EU has rules around this. You're not supposed to have a race to the bottom on corporate taxes. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a reason why Apple is in Ireland. The enforcement mechanisms, is that going to be a challenge if we get this tax up and running? Sure, it's going to be a challenge, but it's a, it's a new day here. We, we are looking at technology, big tech companies in a new way. Um, everybody wants a piece of what they're doing, especially as they start to infringe on our personal space with mm -hmm. our data. And, and now they're messing with local economies, right? We're, we're, we're disadvantaging those people who are playing fairly, the mom and pop shops that Ali just talked about, and advantaging those who can rise above that. So we need to level this playing field. And we know this digital economy is not going anywhere. So we better figure this out so that everyone has an incentive to keep this global flow of data happening and commerce happening. Yeah, and I think the important thing uh, here is that it's the G20 finance ministers exactly. that, are, that are driving it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, other countries will have to get in line if they want to have, you know, trade treaties and economic treaties and tax treaties with these other countries. The G20 really drives the world economy. So... I think it's, you know, it's starting from the right place. I think so too. Yeah. There you go. One to watch for sure, as it is a tentative agreement, but a good first step. In other news, Tableau, which we actually use here at BIV to visualize data, was acquired by Salesforce in a $15.7 billion deal. What is Salesforce going to do with Tableau? This has been rumored for a long time. What's the potential here? Yeah, so so for those listeners who don't know what Tableau is, Tableau is a business intelligence reporting tool, and it, it competes pretty much with Power, I think Power BI from Microsoft. So it's sort of uh, Microsoft's big competitor in the BI space. Uh, we use it at Progressa as well. Uh, I, I was surprised that Salesforce uh, made this acquisition 
but it's a great acquisition for them because it really fits nicely in in what Salesforce is trying to do and, and to integrate uh, business intelligence with a sort of a customer relationship management tool, I think could do wonders for them. Uh, so I, I see this as a great strategic move. Um, but I just, uh, I'm surprised it was them that bought them and not, you know, a Microsoft competitor. Well, they lost out on, Salesforce lost out on the LinkedIn purchase. They worked hard to get LinkedIn. Microsoft beat them to that one. So I'm guessing they were working and they have been reportedly working pretty hard to get Tableau on board. And Tableau, by the way, last Friday was worth 10.7 billion. So they, they uh, worked hard, hard all stock deal to get them under the umbrella of, of what Salesforce seems to be turning into is kind of this conglomerate of tools that we can use that customers can use to look at customer data and data in the industry and now visualize. Pulling out from legacy systems was their MuleSoft purchase. Yep. And now visualizing all that stuff, as we all know now with Tableau in a beautiful, useful, human-readable way. Very surprised that Google didn't get their hands on Tableau, though. Well, but I'm Google last surprised. week bought Looker. They did. So You're they right. got yeah. Looker for, what, 2.9 or $2.7 billion? So cheap. Again, one of those big techs. <laughs> You know, gobbling up a little, a little company, a two point seven billion dollar company being little, I guess. But well, fifteen uh, is cheap for for Google yeah, as well. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but now Google's got end to end as well for data visualization and collection. So yep. the race is on, and yep. everyone else, I'm guessing, is going to start to jump into the game. And and as we already know, Microsoft is in that space, as is Amazon. But yeah, and there is a few other startups that are out there that are um, trying to disrupt the business intelligence. Ready space. for acquisition. We're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> On that BI space, uh, it's something that a lot of companies will pay quite a premium for if you have really good services. Are we maybe going to see some free options from, say, Google putting it out? Or is it still going to be sort of a, a valued premium space for the time being? What do we think? Uh, I see it staying fairly premium. It's it's quite complex. And uh, it's, it's, it's not... You know, it's taking the data and it's it's visualizing it and making it much easier for the company to, to digest. So uh, that's that's sort of a value add service in my view. It's not something that you would offer for free. I don't yeah. know what your thoughts are. I think on the Google end, I think it will come down to the people who are running small websites and small businesses online. It'll be baked around the analytics, Google Analytics platform. So mm-hmm. anybody using Google to run their online presence, I think is going to get a really great deal, if not a free deal on integrating Looker into how they're visualizing the data that flows through their system. So I think uh, Salesforce won't offer it for free. They don't need to. But Google, I believe, will offer some version of it under Mm. their business plan. Which costs money. Yeah, it It will be included in their business plan, which I agree with, for sure. But but a little bit of money. Like, comparatively speaking, it's pretty cheap. But not free. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Amazon is launching a credit builder card for those with bad credit who want to get out of that cycle. What do you think of this, Allie? <laughs> Every, this everybody, everybody in my company slacked me yesterday, one at a time, <laughs> all evening. I have this same link. While you're trying to watch the company. game. <laughs> Just what do you think of this? Um, you know what? I think it's a, I think it's a great move for Amazon. There's 100 and, uh, 110 million unbank- underbanked uh, or unbanked uh, people in the U.S., so it's a it's a massive market and a market in great need of, uh, you know, credit building products. Uh, so from that perspective, Amazon has a big mousetrap. They have these customers coming in doing their shopping. Uh, they want to offer credit. Amazon has long been you know wanting to get into the banking game, and so this is one avenue to uh, you know start at the bottom and try to help people just build the credit profile. Uh, those will eventually become loyal customers and go and shop on your platform. So it's a great move for them. There you go. That's what I was going to ask. Linda, is this ultimately about brand loyalty, getting people in early? Yeah, absolutely. About building your audience and reaching customers that couldn't 
actually be reached before? How do you successfully participate in the digital economy if you don't have a credit card? That's tough. Um, but it also goes along Amazon and Walmart's dive into how they can accept food stamps and other ways to get to these underbanked, underrepresented people in our digital world. Uh, so I think it is good. It's um, it, it's a secured credit card, hey? So they do yeah. have to put down 100 to $1,000 to be able to play in this space, mm -hmm. and that money can't be used against purchases. So I'm hoping that that helps people get in, but it might still be onerous for some. It, it will be. It's meant to help people establish credit. So again, it's targeted towards the underbanked, the people that don't have a credit profile at all. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're, they're credit invisibles. And uh, it's a massive market in the U.S. And, and what a, do you think about the interest rate? What is it, 26 point something? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, there doesn't seem like there's actually any credit risk here. It looks like they're, they're taking a deposit up front. So I don't know that that interest rate is necessary. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, these people have to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the visualization tools they're giving them yes. with their dashboard to That's see right. how it's improving their credit. R reminds me a little bit of Amazon, of uh, Apple's, uh, Apple's uh, product with, um, with the credit card as yeah. well. Just having that visualization built right into the platform. Exactly. Yeah. By the way, Ali, how disruptive might a bank of Amazon be if we really see it move much more majorly into this space? It really depends on the on how broad they go. I mean, retailers have been offering credit cards till you know forever. You know, uh, Walmart's had a Mastercard for the last thirty years. Yeah. Uh, Costco's had their their uh, their Amex mm -hmm. and now the Visa and so on and so forth. So it's not new to the retail space. It just depends on again 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 the the breadth of the offering and how you know how int how integrated it's going to be. Is Amazon going to be the actual bank or are they going to partner up? In this case, they're partnering up with Synchrony. Yeah. I always like to kind of come up with some slightly philosophical discussion questions, and this applies to our final topic of the day. They're new smart glasses from Vuzix, but they come equipped with fully autonomous facial recognition software. The idea being it would be run against a database, so think law enforcement. It can capture 15 faces per frame in less than one second and store up to 1 million faces locally. A lot of commentary about whether this is a good thing and it helps us stay safe or whether it's creepy. Linda, I'll start with you. What do you think about an invention like this? I think it's inevitable uh, and creepy. And I think that the um, it's arsenic in the water of democracy is the line that came out of the New York Times article this week or last week. Uh, and it is a slow erosion of what it means to live in a democratic society when we have this ultra surveillance happening. Uh, basically what will be real time, by the way, when 5G networks hit our world. So we may have to store this data locally on these Vuzix blade glasses now, but it's not a great leap to imagine a time a few years from now when this all the data is available to these people wearing these devices. So I think it's it's a it needs to have a conversation. We need to have a conversation on a federal level and right down to the municipal level, just like San Francisco did. And when they said no facial recognition, how we need to start deciding how we want to employ this technology within our democratic societies and not just let companies like Amazon and and um, iFalcon developers, for instance, uh, throw this into the world and expect us to clean up the mess. It's hard for me to see a lot of positive practical applications to this technology. Can you think of any off the top of your head? Well, I mean, we're saying that I can walk into a Starbucks and they can see my face and make my latte before I walk up to the up to the 
mobile stand, right? So there, there's one application. I can walk into a shopping mall and Nordstrom's is going to say, Linda, your favorite pair of shoes is on sale. So that is supposedly what we want in our future as mm. consumers. I don't think I want that, but certainly not at the, Amazon. Not at the cost, and- yeah, not at the cost of, of compromising your privacy and a whole whack load of other potential concerns. Right. But then what do we do when we're constraining law enforcement? So what are we saying then? We don't want law enforcement to have it. Uh, we're going to force them to stick with the CCTV footage that we allow them to see or flip through mugshots or mugshot books to find people they need. So are we going to are we going to constrain law enforcement when this technology as this technology advances or can can we find a balance? And I think that this is a conversation that people who are smarter than me at this need to have. We need to have this really careful conversation like San Francisco is starting to show us and other municipalities in California about how we want this to come into our public space. But on top of that, it's... it's a whole can of worms though, Linda. I because know. It, it, people have just fundamental privacy rights that are going to be muddied here. It's going to be, there's going to be a big gray area if people are walking around with glasses and are able to identify you in real time, wherever you are. So now take the technology off the glass, because that's just dorky, and stick it on walls, put it on screens, put it on the escalators and the elevators of the shopping malls, and make it more invisible as it will be. And so if we knew that um, Pacific Center Mall was going to have facial recognition to help us interact with all our stores and our people we'd like to visit and see in the Pacific Center Mall, would that mean you would no longer shop there? Yeah. And the interesting thing is they're private. It's a private That's corporation. Right. That's so right. uh, what what are the laws? I mean, can they do it anyway? If That's they want right. it, it's their premises. If you're on their premises, do they have the right to just identify you as you're coming on the premises. Yeah. And this can of worms is is creepy to me because it's Amazon is pushing it everywhere. What did the software do when the ICLU tested the recognition software? 28 members of Congress were identified as criminals. Oh, God. Whoops. <laughs> you know, and ra- racism is baked into the tech right now. We know yeah, that. It's yeah. got 25% failure rate. So that's not good enough, Amazon, for you to be pushing that at federal security agencies and and cities and organizations around the world. It needs to be better. Yeah, there's already enough questions around it. it it's got to almost be perfect if you're going to roll it out into production. It's got to be better than human. Yeah. Can we at least agree on that? I mean, we can, you know, we can't, you know, life is not a game of perfect, but it's got to be better than us at it. Or why would we use it just to identify more people potentially in error? Uh, but you're right. And the thing that San Francisco, however excited I am about San Francisco having the dialogue, that's only public spaces. Those are public environments. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do about the stores and the shopping malls right. and the cars and the buses? And that's a real concern. And will there have to be warnings? Saying that if you enter this building or you board this bus, this is what you're agreeing yeah. to. This is the technology that exists. Well, they're making that's what they're making. Uh, that's the, that's the way disclosure is going online. Mm-hmm. So it should be no different if you're out walking the streets and you're being monitored. So we either don't go in the streets or we all wear niqabs or burqas. No, I, right? I think I think if if this technology is to survive, then uh, the rules will have to adapt around it. I mean, we're going to have to get that disclosure in front of people. So maybe you're walking down the street, you reach a point in the street and you have a camera on you and it notifies you. Like something, there's a, a, you know, a a voice that notifies you and says you're being watched. And it better happen federally because if this is municipally, then I can go into Vancouver with no facial recognition, but slide over to Burnaby with facial recognition. Like, how are we going to know that? It it would have to start start at the federal level for sure. It's a messy, messy, creepy thing that we need to have a really good conversation about. Do we actually think it's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. I think it's going to happen. Well, I wonder what's stopping an individual from ordering this online and gets shipped to you relatively anonymously. You need the data set, obviously, to run it against something. But can't you buy so much data online? Yes. All our photos are online. I have photos Absolutely. of me online. Hey, listen, and by the way, we're all helping build this data set out when we tag each other in photos and and use put our pictures out on the internet. And so, yeah, you can buy the technology now if you wanted to, and we can probably spend just a couple of minutes figuring out how to get it on the dark web, all the data sets we need. So the concerns, I think maybe governments, I'm holding out hope that the governments are going to figure out how to use this, but it's these private and bad actor entities getting their hands on it. And maybe not using it in ways as obvious as a glass, like the Vuzix or the Google Glass, but in more covert and hidden ways. Those are, you know, again, it's going to, will we become an, um, a public space when we walk out of our homes will we be shielding our identities in some way to avoid this yeah there is already uh already you know a use of this in china for negative purposes i, I was reading in the article probably positive for the chinese government negative for the people yeah. who are being yeah. who are being um identified absolutely it's a way of of holding people down and controlling their behavior in a dictatorship but finding dissidents Bingo. Finding, yeah, or people who are just, journalists. you know, crossing the street at the wrong time and we want to throw them in jail. But we don't live that way here. This is a democracy and we need to be very careful about surveillance. This is Orwell on steroids. Agreed. There you go. I hate to leave it on that note, but <laughs> we could just go on all day it. like this. <laughs> I know. I know. As always, Linda, Ali, thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. That's Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society and Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also listen to our whole archive of episodes over at BIV.com slash audio. More business news is available at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>